The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Earth's mightiest heroes type thing. Avengers, time to work for a living. That's my secret. I'm always angry. I am on the side of life. You get hurt, hurt him back. You get killed, walk it off. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. I'm your host, Andrew, and I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers. Welcome to episode 94 of Some Assembly Required, your podcasting adventure into the annals of Earth's mightiest heroes, the Avengers. This week, we are taking a look at Avengers number 89, The Only Good Alien. This issue is written by Roy Thomas, pencils by Sal Buscema, inks by Sam Granger, letters by Sam Rosen, and it comes to us in June of 1971. Before we jump into this, folks, it is worth announcing that we have finally made it. We are at the first issue of the infamous Kree Skrull War. This is the first of nine issues in this particular story arc. And although in the end the issues will tie themselves together fairly well, they are still fairly loose in terms of their connection with one another. This is still long before the concept of the modern comics event really comes to life. So although there is an overarching narrative going on here, this is not civil war. This is not secret invasion. This is not even crisis on infinite earths for those of you who are familiar with the very famous DC event. So keep that in mind as we start going through these next several issues. Starting off with our cover, this is a great cover. It is very dramatic and loads an amazing amount of color onto this page. Captain Marvel is an interesting choice to bring into the story at this point, just based on what we've seen in the past, but he's also a very clear choice for introducing the Avengers to the Kree. A lot of that has to do with his connection to Rick Jones, which we will dive into a little bit more here shortly, and that we've seen once before. Diving into our issue, a mysterious figure in a mask and trench coat makes his way through the shadows, but he is not alone. Following closely on his trail are three figures, more alike than foreign. Here on the streets of America, the Avengers hunt the alien known as Captain Marvel. As Scarlet Witch, Quicksilver, and Vision attempt to confront the mighty Kree warrior, their entreaties are met with fear and hostility. When their offers of friendship are rebuffed, Quicksilver attempts a more direct approach, only to be sent reeling by a single punch. So obviously we as the reader have really no idea what's going on here. The Avengers obviously seem to have a pretty good idea of what's going on and what they're doing and that they need to get to Captain Marvel. But he is either terrified of something in general or very specifically trying to evade the Avengers here. Now, of course, as I mentioned, Quicksilver tries to take this direct approach. And of course, it's Quicksilver who goes charging headlong into the situation and then gets sent flying in the other direction because he's the hot-headed speedster. That's kind of his thing. And we've seen this so many times. It's a bit of a trope, I will admit. But at this point, it's also very in character. It's very well established. Captain Marvel then decides it's time to take the fight to the Avengers, though his initial efforts are foiled by Vision's density-shifting abilities. Stopping the android with his photonic unibeam and not wanting to engage the Scarlet Witch, Captain Marvel attempts to flee by flying to the roof of a nearby building. To his surprise, he is blasted by an unexpected figure, Rick Jones. 
So while Captain Marvel is facing off against our three Avengers here, there is a very odd mix of superiority and paranoia in his speech. He berates them for dealing with only earthly foes. But while he's doing this, his facial expressions are wild and fearful. It's also worth mentioning at this point that the Avengers have dealt with a couple of different alien threats, plus they've dealt with high-level threats like Kang and Immortus. Again, keeping in mind that at this point, those two characters haven't actually been identified as being the same person. So right now you can really think of Kang and Immortus as being very different villains, but both very powerful. So obviously Rick Jones is the glue that kind of ties these two groups together. I, I say groups, it's the Avengers and Captain Marvel, so it's not really a, a, a group on one side there. But Rick started appearing in Captain Marvel, starting with issue number 17, and the pair had shown up in Avengers number 72, so we're looking about 17 issues ago. But at the time, even though both characters showed up in the issue, the actual connection between Rick and Captain Marvel was not made clear to the Avengers at the time. It was obvi very obvious to us, the reader, but to those characters in the story, that connection wasn't made. Obviously, Rick has very strong ties to early Avengers, first the Hulk and then Captain America, and with his physical connections to Captain Marvel right now, he really does play that go-between and helps bring Captain Marvel into this story. With the help of Rick Jones, the Avengers load Captain Marvel into their waiting Quinjet and jet across the sky to the hospital at Cape Kennedy and a waiting Dr. Donaldson. Upon their arrival, Marvell is strapped into a decontamination chair in the hopes of saving his life as well as preventing the destruction of the Earth. While all of this is going on, there's a great uh, Stranger in a Strange Land name drop, and I do find it kind of fitting. Captain Marvel, I don't want to say very closely fits that, but there are some very interesting parallels between the Captain Marvel character and the protagonist of Stranger in a Strange Land. If you haven't read the book by Robert A. Heinlein, I wouldn't recommend it. It's a very interesting science fiction read. If you're familiar with his work on Starship Troopers, very, very different. I have a lot of thoughts on that, but I won't dive into that here, but definitely worth a read. As we see here, there's some very strange stuff being done to Captain Marvel. I really love the art of him strapped in, into the chair and the, the machine doing its thing. It's a great panel of just energy and color. It conveys exactly what it needs to and what it intends to without saying a word in that particular panel. There's a, there's a sound effect going across. So I'll, I'll give you that, but there's a great sense of wonder and danger involved in this, and I, as the reader, pick up on it instantaneously. It's beautifully done. I kind of wish it were bigger, but at the same time, it works in its own context. As the assembled heroes wait to see what will become of Captain Marvel, Rick Jones takes a minute to reflect on the events which brought them all together. Because, oh god, flashback time! Just what I always wanted! While playing a gig in a Bleecker Street club, Rick is suddenly overcome by the presence of Captain Marvel. Still trapped in the negative zone and linked to Rick Jones via the negabands, Captain Marvel informs Rick of a visit by Reed Richards of the Fantastic Four. Unseen by both Richards and Annihilus, Lord of the Negative Zone, Marvell has spied a way for him to escape the Negative Zone. All he asks is that Rick make his way to the Baxter Building to seek answers that may set both men free. So again, remember at this point, Rick and Marvell basically, through use of these Negabands, swap atoms 
for up to three hours at a time. So Rick goes to the negative zone and Captain Marvel leaves the negative zone and comes to the re regular world. As we kind of see here, it's been a long time since the two of them have switched places and Rick does kind of acknowledge that he's screwed over Captain Marvel a bit here. The fact that he hasn't let them him out for weeks at a time, especially when he can only come out for three hours, that's not really a huge sacrifice on on Rick's part. And, you know, not letting the man out of the negative zone is, is kind of a dick move on, on Rick's part. But again, he at least acknowledges that he probably should have done something differently here. One thing I didn't realize, and I'm not going to lie here, is that I didn't understand Annihilus was this old a villain. I'm not hugely versed on early Fantastic Four, so I kind of assumed he was more of a modern villain. My first, my initial experience with him was during Annihilation, and I assumed he was relatively new prior to that storyline. Obviously, I'm very wrong here. So that was kind of a, a, a nice, interesting revelation for me that this character is much older than I thought. So now I'm going to have to go go dive into him a little bit further. On his arrival at the Baxter building, Rick switches atoms with Captain Marvel one last time so that Marvel may use his superior abilities to enter the Baxter building. Making his way deeper into the building, Captain Marvel triggers a silent alarm, one which the Avengers Quicksilver, Scarlet Witch, and Vision have been monitoring for at the request of Reed Richards. The signal received, the Avengers quickly make their way to confront the unknown intruder. So if you remember back to last issue, these three particular Avengers, Quicksilver, Scarlet Witch, and Vision, chose to stay behind while the rest of the Avengers went and helped Cap look for Falcon's friend. And they stayed behind at the request of Reed Richards. So apparently Richards was expecting something like this to happen, but apparently Reed was okay leaving town and just having someone watch the alarm. This is why Reed Richards is like the least responsible super scientist in the Marvel Universe. I like Reed in a lot of ways because his passion for science is very pure in terms of he really does experiments and works on science really for the sake of knowledge, knowledge for its own sake. So there's an interesting purity to that, but he is also about as responsible as my three-year-old, like seriously. In the sequence where Captain Marvel is entering the Baxter building, there are a couple of panels that I really can't stand, and it has very little to do with the art itself, and it is everything to do with the layout. I hate it when they do some kind of goofy panel layout that requires them to put arrows so the readers can follow what's going on. If I cannot intuit the order I am supposed to read the panels in, you are doing this wrong. Straight up, if I can't figure out really natively without arrows, without any kind of other in indications how I should be reading these panels, you're, you're not doing comics right. I've seen some really impressive breakdowns that people have done of very good artists, and I'm not at all trying to slam on Salvo Samo here because I generally think he's a very talented artist. Um, we've seen some very good work out of him and his work on Avengers here, but of people like, you know, Jack Kirby, who obviously is one of, if not the greatest comic artist of all time. And you look at how he lays out characters and panels to lead the reader's eye through the comic and people will actually like either take his inks or just take the pages and and draw arrows and lines and things as how he uses uh, a character's body position or line of sight 
or the angle of a building, you know, various things to lead the eye from one panel to the next and give you a, a sense of how they're supposed to flow. It's very impressive. So there are ways to do even a kind of an oddball layout like this without those arrows. And if you need the arrows, you're not, you're not laying out these panels correctly. Just as the Avengers arrive, Marvell is able to activate Reed Richards, Negative Zone Portal, and free Rick Jones. Unfortunately, Rick is not the only one waiting and watching. Just before they are able to close the portal, Annihilus makes his way through. Immune to the attacks of Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, only the quick wit and intangibility of vision allow the heroes to send Annihilus back to his realm. So basically what happens here is that Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch take a crack at Annihilus. It doesn't work, like completely ineffective. Vision gets between Annihilus and the portal. Annihilus dives for Vision. Vision turns intangible and Annihilus passes through, diving straight into the portal and then they shut it off. It is a legitimately comical moment. You know, for being a major Marvel Universe villain and someone who supposedly rules the negative zone, he's tricked pretty easily easily and then thwarted by vision going intangible. This is obviously pretty standard stuff for vision and Annihilus is already kind of an over-the-top villain so it makes this sort of melodrama just over the top and very laughable. But you know let's be clear here Annihilus is one of the major villains of the Marvel Universe. And so letting him out of the negative zone that's a that's a bad thing. That's a bad idea. You should not do that. While the heroes are distracted with their brush with doom, they fail to notice that Marvel has slipped out and stolen their Quinjet. As they realize what has happened, the Avengers discover something even more worrisome. Captain Marvel is nearly bursting with radiation, absorbed from his weeks stuck in the negative zone. If they are unable to catch up with the Kree in time, the radiation may kill him or worse, start a chain reaction which will destroy the Earth. Meanwhile, Captain Marvel makes his way towards Florida's Cape Kennedy in hopes of commandeering a rocket with which he can return to his homeworld, Hala. As a result, the Avengers are forced to pursue Captain Marvel and bring down his craft. So of course he's heading to Florida. Because if something weird is going to happen, it's going to happen in Florida. Hello, Florida man. Now, in all honesty, actually, Florida, interestingly enough, comes across as very weird because they have very broad public records laws, which is why these criminal reports get released so quickly and why we have Florida Man, which is, you know, always entertaining. Back in the Cape Kennedy Hospital, now we are back in, no longer in flashback, Captain Marvel's condition is dire. His nega radiation has absorbed nearly all of the power the hospital can muster. If they are unable to purge all the radiation from his system, the buildup will start all over again and their efforts will have been for nothing. In a last-ditch effort, Vision offers to use the solar energy stored within his forehead jewel as an alternate power source. The process is successful, however it leaves both Marvel and Vision in a severely weakened state. Using Vision as a power source is certainly a reasonable idea, but we as the reader know that this is going to have unintended consequences. Draining a character of all their energy is a recipe for suddenly needing them to save the day, suddenly needing them to have all of this power. Also, it looks really cool, but at the same time, it looks like Vision's power actually blasts Marvel's head off. It's just a, a weird thing of how it's drawn, and it's not bad, it's just Kind of funny, I was like, wait, wait, where'd, where'd Captain Marvel's head go? Galaxies away, the Kree criminal Ronan the Accuser has escaped his imprisonment and has returned to Hala to confront the Kree Supreme Intelligence. Taking control of the Kree Empire from the Supreme Intelligence, Ronan unleashes a Kree sentry to hunt down his hated enemy, Captain Marvel.
Supreme Intelligence. Heck yeah. I do love me some Kree Supreme Intelligence. Don't get me wrong. I liked the Supreme Intelligence from the Captain Marvel film. Uh, I think that was a very cool way of doing it. However, I mean, nothing beats the, the green floating blob face. It's so entertaining and so arrogant. And I don't know, there's just something kind of cool and mysterious about it. So really, at this point, we have our first indications that this is not our average Avengers issue and that this is going to be the beginnings of something much more and that we're really opening up the Avengers as a title to the larger universe of Cosmic Marvel. And we're doing so with a great step with the Kree Supreme Intelligence and Ronan the Accuser. Obviously, at this point, we've we've had a, a number of years to start developing the, the Marvel cosmic portion, uh, and from here, it's really only going to continue to develop. Uh, it is also worth pointing out that the Sentry that we see here should not be confused with the modern character of the same name. This one is a Kree robot and not a very sad, blonde Superman knockoff. Overall, this is a good, if somewhat slow, start to the Kree Skrull War. It's Marvel's first true attempt at a space opera. And while not all of the key characters have been introduced, a large number have, and the rest are going to start showing up over the next couple of issues. It's hard to see where the story is going to grow out of and connect to the other issues, but it's also worth noting, as I mentioned before, that this is not a modern event, so we shouldn't have those same modern expectations. And to be perfectly honest, even after its technical conclusion, there are still going to be threads that will be tied up, and the story feels like it continues most interrupted. There's no super clean cutoff point for the Kree Scroll War. If you were reading comics straight through, we as as comics have decided kind of where that cutoff is, but there are definitely still portions of the Kree Scroll War storyline that don't get wrapped up for several more issues. One last thing I want you guys to kind of keep in mind, in preparation for starting this storyline, I read an essay by Paul R. Cole from the book The Ages of the Avengers, which is a, a series of essays written about different eras of the Avengers. And in his essay, Mr. Cole describes the Kree Scroll War as a storyline that mirrors the transitions going on in American society at the time. Remember, we're in 1971 now, so we are still a couple of years away from the beginning of the end of the Vietnam War, where once America had been very confident about its role in the world and the ideas that we were doing the right thing has instead been replaced by a sense of confusion and a desire to some degree to return to a more clear-cut era of right and wrong. Now, I don't intend to dive too deeply into this idea as we go through the issues, but I want you guys to kind of have that that little bit of background in, in your mind as we go through them so that you can kind of see where there may or may not be parallels to Vietnam and to modern American history really between the 1950s and 1971. I think it's especially useful just to kind of mention this, given how how much it's going. I think it's going to bring context to some of the story, uh, especially over not next issue, but within a few issues, or that's going to help bring us a lot of context. And to be perfectly honest, and I am certainly one of those people, I am very removed from this time period. This is almost fifteen years before I was born, so very much. I have learned about this era, era from, from history books, so I didn't live it. It's not as easy for me to grasp the cultural significance of certain things. Things don't quite line up as well. You know, if, you're re if you were reading this as a contemporary comics reader, the things that they're referencing or the parallels that they're making are oftentimes right in front of your face or things that are 
fairly recent in memory. So it's a lot easier to make those connections. Whereas with this, I think it's something we need to at least mention because if we're not thinking about those connections, then they're a lot easier for us to miss. And I, and I think there is a lot to be gained by making those connections. You know, comics in general, and I think Marvel comics of this era does it better than like DC comics of this era, really touches on and is shaped by the society and the events happening around the people making the comics. Right? Marvel is very socially conscious at this time. Don't get me wrong, there are plenty of missteps on their part. There are plenty of intentional, unintentional racist things, insensitive things, homophobic things, like all of those things that we can we think of as, as modern readers as being problematic in comics. Right? Those are all there. But when you compare them to the general sense of where the nation is at this time marvel is really on the i don't want to say the the leading edge but they're definitely they're definitely pushing the towards being more and more progressive so it's important for us to to really you know try and put ourselves in in the time period and in the mindset of of, of the creative team Remember, you can find us at AvengersAssembly.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Next week, we are going to be taking a look at Avengers number 90, Judgment Day. All right, hey. All right, good job, guys. Let's just not come in tomorrow. Let's just take a day. Have you ever tried shawarma? There's a shawarma joint about two blocks from here. I don't know what it is, but I want to try it.